Welcome once again to Systematic Theology. If you're keeping score, this is session 51, and we're continuing through the order of salvation, what is called the Ordo Salutis, and this is just the logical order of what happens when God applies redemption to a person that he elected in eternity past, and once again, I've included that order in your notes. And we've covered election, effectual call, regeneration, repentance unto life, saving faith in Jesus Christ. We're all the way up to the step in the Ordo Salutis called justification. And this step is so important, once again, it's been called the main hinge on which religion turns, and the article by which the church stands or falls. But in the last few sessions, we've taken a little side trip from the Ordo Salutis to look at the law of God. And that's because justification has everything to do with God's law. In our little side trip looking at God's law, we looked at three divisions of the law as delivered to Moses. And those three divisions are the ceremonial law, the judicial law, and the moral law. Now, God has abrogated or abolished by his authority the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was types and shadows that looked forward to Christ, looked forward to his work. The ceremonial law was fulfilled in Christ's work. And then the judicial law. The judicial law is now expired because it had application to ancient Israel as a nation. The only aspect of that judicial law that the nations today are responsible for is what the Westminster Confession of Faith calls the general equity of the judicial law. So we studied that before. Then we looked at the third division of the law, which is the moral law. The moral part of the law is not abrogated. It's not expired. The moral law is rooted in the moral character of God, and it does not change. It is still in effect today. We looked at how the moral law starts with the two great commandments, to love God with all of our being, to love our neighbor as ourselves. All of the moral law hangs from those two great commandments. Just like the Golden Gate Bridge, the entire bridge is suspended from two towers that are, that are embedded in the bedrock. And the entire bridge hangs from those two great towers. All of the moral law hangs from, two, from the two great commandments commandments, love God, love neighbor. The two great commandments of the moral law, they're detailed in the Ten Commandments, and those Ten Commandments hang from or depend on the two great commandments. In the next sessions, we studied the moral law more closely at the three rightful uses of the moral law. The first lawful use of the moral law is to drive people to a true estimation of their own sin, to show their need for a savior. Then the second lawful use of the moral law is to restrain the nations because the nations otherwise would descend into even further depravity than we see today. Now the first and second uses of the moral law have their greatest application for unbelievers. At the time that an elect person hears the outward call of the gospel, and it's combined with the inward call from the Holy Spirit, we've studied those two kinds of calls before, then the law causes him to see his desperate situation of sin. And once he is saved, well, that first use has now served its main purpose. But even saved people still benefit from the first use of the law, which we call the pedagogical use, which just means teaching. Pedagogical is the teaching use. Once, even once we're saved, we should be reminded of the gravity of sin and what we've been saved from so that we will repent when we do sin. 
And then the second use of the moral law is the civil use of the law, the use of the moral law that restrains the nations from being as evil as they could possibly descend to. There is a certain restraint that comes from fear of judgment. The nations are not restrained because they love God or love the law. They don't. It's because their conscience still reflects the moral law, and the law issues threats of judgment. This second use of the moral law, which we call the civil use, has its main purpose with unbelievers. But Christians, we still do benefit from this second use because society wouldn't be possible without it. And also, we do need to be reminded of the seriousness of the law to motivate us to love righteousness. But now we've looked at the first and second uses of the moral law. We now come to the third use of the moral law. And that is the use as it applies to Christians and only Christians. The third use of the moral law is to guide Christians in how to live a life that is pleasing to God, in gratitude to God, with our thoughts, words, and deeds being fruit and evidence of justification. Fruit and evidence. Now, the third use of the law has been called the normative use of the law. And that name, normative, comes from the fact that the moral law of God norms the Christian life. What is a norm? The definition of a norm is something that is usual, typical, or standard. The moral law in norming the Christian life tells us how we should strive to live. It provides a standard for our thoughts, words, and deeds. It's really important to remember that this third use of the moral law, this normative use, it's not designed to earn salvation. Our lives aren't normed by the law until we're already justified by God's work in us. We don't bring anything to the table when we're justified. Even once we are saved and the third use of the law norms our lives then, we don't earn salvation merit by that. We begin to seek to live this way out of gratitude and as fruit and evidence of the reality of our new state in Christ. The third use of the law means that we now see the moral law differently than we did before we were saved. Before we were born again, before regeneration, we hated the law because it shut us up under condemnation. We sought to be free of what we saw as handcuffs. But because our mind, will, and affections have changed, we now see the law differently. We can say with the psalmist in Psalm 119 that we love the law and meditate on it. And I'll just read one verse, Psalm 119, verse 97, where the psalmist begins a love poem for the scriptures with this verse. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalmist was expressing a love for all of Scripture, but the moral law was certainly a part of what he loved and meditated on. Only those with a changed mind, will, and affections can say this. Before salvation, we hated the moral law because we saw the law as a burdensome thing. But when we were saved, our mind, will, and affections were changed, and the moral law is no longer a burden. John says this about the third use of the law, and I'll read next from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. This is what John says about the third use of the law. 
1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. The observable mark of those who love God are those who are practicing the third use of the law, the normative use of the law. The badge of the Christian, the observable mark, is that the moral law guides their lives. And this passage in 1 John gives us tests to assure that we are truly in the faith. First, there's a doctrinal test. Do we believe that Jesus is the Christ? There's also a test of the fruit and evidence of the new birth. Do we love God and love the children of God? The proof of this love is that we pattern our lives according to the third use of the moral law. We see the moral commandments as our pattern of life. Then John goes on. He gives us a major difference between believers and unbelievers. For the Christian, God's commandments are no longer burdensome. For the unbeliever, who's still under the first use of the law, they hate the law. They see the law as an intolerable burden. They cannot keep the law, and indeed, they don't want to keep it. But for the Christian, who lives by the third use of the law, we see the law as something to delight in, to meditate on, to contemplate for our lives, to apply to our hearts. The Puritan William Perkins, he gave three reasons why God's commandments, which are a burden to the unsaved, are not burdensome once we are regenerated. The first reason he gave is because our transgressions against the law have been forgiven through the work of Christ. We have transgressed the law, but the curse that comes with that transgression has been taken away, so the burden of that curse is gone forever. The second reason that the law is no longer burdensome, the commandments of God are not burdensome to the Christian because Christ, in living a perfect, sinless life under the law, did this so that his perfect obedience would be imputed to us or accounted to us. So not only are we forgiven for our transgressions, but God also accounts the righteousness of Christ to us. So the burden of the law's requirement for perfection has been met in Christ. This reality of imputation, that's what we're going to be studying when we get further on into the doctrine of justification in our next studies. And then there's a third reason that William Perkins gave on why the commandments are not burdensome to Christians. It's because of the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit in our lives who enables us to gradually grow in obedience to the moral law in the process of sanctification. The unsaved do not have the Holy Spirit, so the law's demand for obedience is a yoke that they cannot bear. And we're going to get to the doctrine of sanctification later on as we go forward through the Ordo Salutis. The third use of the moral law, it was anticipated in the Old Testament in prophecy. I'll be reading next from Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah prophesied of the days of the new covenant, when the third use of the law would be in effect in the lives of believers. If you'd like to follow along, I'll be in Jeremiah 31 verse 33. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. The Jews were certainly familiar with the moral law as it was written outside of them on tablets of stone. Now the prophecy of a future announcement comes through Jeremiah. The prophecy is a precursor to the good news of the gospel. The law at Sinai was written with the finger of God on stone tablets outside of people's hearts for believers today because we're under the third use of the law. God has written his moral law with his own finger on our hearts. The verse finishes with the core of the covenant, the purpose of the covenant that God had as the point of his project all along. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Some people think that the moral commandments have no place at all for the Christian. These people make such a hard break between the Old Testament and the New Testament that the moral law of the Old Testament, well, it's just irrelevant for us today as Christians. I saw an example of this teaching once, and I wish I could remember where I saw it. But it goes like this. As you drive down the street, you see a speed limit sign that says 25 miles per hour. That sign sets a legal limit for you as you drive. But then, as you're driving along, you spot a flying bird, and that bird's flying faster than 25 miles an hour. The sign applies to you, but the bird is free from the law, so the sign simply doesn't apply to the bird. That's how that person explained how Christians are free from all the Old Testament law to the point that the moral law of the Old Testament, well, it's just irrelevant. It's true that the ceremonial and judicial laws are no longer in force, but this person also carried this over to the moral laws, the Ten Commandments. There is a term for this belief that the moral law is irrelevant, and that term is antinomianism, antinomianism. The word antinomianism comes from the first part of the word anti. Well, that part's obvious. It means against. The second part of the word comes from the Greek nomos, which is that's Greek for law. So antinomianism means against the law. It turns out that Martin Luther coined the word in 1539 in a work called Against the Antinomians. Antinomians deny that the moral law of God has an ongoing role in the life of a Christian. The antinomian looks at the Ten Commandments and says, well, all that's Old Testament, not for today. The antinomian will teach that the moral law revealed in the Old Testament is something that Christians can more or less ignore to some degree. Now, one way that antinomianism may show itself is with those who teach that, well, you know what? Once a person prays the sinner's prayer, walks the aisle in response to an altar call, signs a card, whatever, that person is saved, whatever their lives may look like afterward. They deny the doctrine of repentance unto life as being part of conversion. Or they deny the need for sanctification. They deny that the mark of a good tree is that it bears good fruit. Now, another way that antinomianism may show itself is that going on to seek to please God with your thoughts, words, and deeds is a second blessing. 
doctrine of the second blessing. This teaching is that becoming a Christian is like buying a new car. You can buy the base model of a new car, or you can add you know, a turbocharged engine. It's an option. Antinomians sometimes teach the doctrine of the higher life, where a Christian seeking to please God in gratitude is it's an option for those who want to reach for higher things, for that second blessing. If you just happen to want to reach for the top shelf and have something extra. Instead of the moral law guiding the life for all true Christians, instead of this being fruit and evidence of justification, it's just an option for people who happen to want a higher life. You know, what's rather odd about what's called the higher life movement it often leads to an opposite error, perfectionism, in this present life. In this version of the higher life movement, those who choose to pursue sanctification as a second blessing, well, you can go on to be morally perfect in this life. It's another falsehood. Since as Christians, we are not yet completely free of sinning. So it's amazing how they can go from falling into one ditch on one side of the road right over to falling in the ditch on the other side. Antinomianism denies the third use of the moral law in one way or another. There's a kind of lighter form of antinomianism that's more common. What this form does is it substitutes the moral law in its proper use for Christians with the law of love or the law of Christ. And I talked to the Christian once who believed this. He objected to language that spoke of Christians seeking to follow the moral law of God. Instead, he said, well, you know, we leave the Old Testament moral law behind in favor of what he called the law of Christ or the law of love. So instead of the moral law of God being valid for Christians in norming our lives as fruit and evidence of God's work, there's a kind of substitution going on where the Ten Commandments, as a summary of what it looks like to love God and neighbor, it's changed to something, well, a little less specific. Now, what makes this difficult to sort out is that the terminology of the law of Christ, it's actually biblical language. And we're going to look at that shortly. The law of Christ is biblical for Christians, but there's a lot of discussion and disagreement about what the law of Christ is and whether it differs from the two great commandments of loving God with all your being and loving your neighbor as yourself. And you might remember that we saw in our last study that from the two great commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Many times, instead of looking to God's commandments as being the mark of Christian love, they will say that, well, we're only under the law of Christ or the law of love. It is true that we're under the law of love, but we need to see what the law of love is in a practical sense. What does it look like? What does the law of love look like practically? Is it just doing what feels right? Is it okay for the Christian to commit murder or adultery or worship idols because, well, hey, I'm no longer under any law but the law of love? Now, what some Christians will do is they'll point to Galatians chapter 6, which is where I'll be next. This is where the language of the law of Christ is used. In these words, the law of Christ, it's definitely biblical words. And I'll read from Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, 
and so fulfill the law of Christ. When a Christian ignores the Ten Commandments and says that instead he follows the law of Christ, what does he mean? The words the law of Christ are biblical words. We just read them. But we need to unpack and we need to explain those words. Is the law of Christ different than the moral law given at Mount Sinai? Is it different from the two great commandments, to love God with all of our being and to love our neighbor as ourselves? Is the law of Christ different than what hangs from the two great commandments, which is the Ten Commandments? The words, the law of Christ, they have a connection to what Jesus commanded his disciples in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. And I'll read from that. The Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also are, so you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So, we have the law of Christ, mentioned by Paul in Galatians, and the new commandment given by Christ in the Gospel of John. These two things, they appear to be connected. Once again, is there a way in which these things are the same as the moral law, and is there a way that they're different from the moral law? These phrases, the law of Christ and the new commandment, are difficult phrases, and you know what? Different commentators come to different conclusions about them. I'm going to give you my conclusion about what the phrases mean. And I think the conclusion of the 17th century clergyman Ralph Cudworth is a good explanation. Ralph Cudworth gave this explanation on how the new commandment given by Christ that his disciples should love one another. It is truly new compared with the moral law given in the Old Testament. And he gave two categories of newness. Newness because of Christ and newness because of us. First, the new commandment is new because of Christ because Christ himself renewed this command. He set the command of love free from all of the false interpretations of the scribes and Pharisees. Also, Christ fulfilled the command perfectly himself. He loved perfectly. So the new commandment is new because there is a new manner in which it was fulfilled in Christ, which was not according to the legalism of the Pharisees. The second way that the new commandment is new because of Christ, is that Christ separated the moral law from the ceremonial law and the judicial law of Moses. He broke it out from the ceremonial law and the judicial law. Christ abrogated the ceremonial law, and the judicial laws expired. Christ has removed the other aspects of the law of Moses, but Christ has renewed this moral law. It is as though Christ were saying, Though I have abrogated the ceremonial law and caused the judicial law to be expired, this moral command will never be abrogated. And this I commend to you again as my commandment above all others that you disciples love one another. So those are two reasons why. Because of Christ, the command to love one another is a new commandment. But Cudworth also gave a reason for the newness which points to us. It is new for us 
Because before salvation, sin kept us from this kind of love for one another. We needed the change of the new birth. We needed regeneration. We needed to be changed in mind, will, and affections in order to carry out the commandment to love. The Old Testament commanded us to love God and neighbor. But now that the Holy Spirit is within us, giving us new ability, this is a renewed commandment. Now, in addition to these reasons that Cudworth gives for this being a new commandment, I want to add a couple more that come from the passage here in the Gospel of John. And I'm going to read that new commandment again. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Christ is calling us to a new and special focus with the new commandment. The commandment to love neighbor is an old commandment. But the new commandment has a special focus on Christian to Christian. Now, we are not to love our neighbor outside the church less, but the new commandment calls us to a new special focus of love within the church. The new commandment is that we, as disciples, love one another. That is a mark by which the world will identify us as Christian. This is the badge that Christians wear, that the disciples love one another. This is a new commandment because it has a new focus as part of the household code of the church. In fact, we have a commonality with one another as disciples that go beyond what the world has in common with nationalities or even traditional family ties. Spurgeon had this to say about our attachment to one another as family. He said, we are brethren because... In Christ, we are all in one family, and hence it is that we are called to a new kind of love, a love like the love of the brothers of the same house, only more sublime, and with better reason lying at the bottom than even the love of common blood can boast. Next, the new commandment also sets an example of love. When Christ sets the standard, just as I have loved you. Following an example, it reminds me of days back in grade school. Do you remember when they taught kids how to write in cursive? And they had these posters that wrapped around the whole front of the classroom to show you how each cursive letter was supposed to look. That was my example. I was supposed to make my cursive letters look like that poster. And I was a complete failure at that. And I just wrote in block letters. Let's forget this. But we're we were supposed to strive. We were supposed to practice to match that perfect example on the poster. And like that, we should strive to follow the new commandment, to love one another, looking to Jesus as our perfect example. As part of the new commandment, Jesus said, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. We won't be perfect in this life, but through practice and looking at the example, we grow in our love for one another. Our love for one another is to be self-sacrificial as Jesus loves us. There's a new focus and a new example. 
So is the content of the new commandment given by Christ different from the moral law, the content? No, the content is the same. The content is love of God and love of neighbor because from these two great commandments hang the entire moral law. What hangs from the two great commandments? The Ten Commandments. The new commandment that Christ gave us is indeed new because it is new in its renewal, separate from the ceremonial law and the judicial law. It is new because it is freed from the abuses of the Pharisees. It is new because we now have the new birth and the indwelling Holy Spirit giving us new enablement, new ability. It is new because of its new and special focus of the love within the church. It is new because of the example of Christ that we can see. But the content of the moral law is actually old because the moral law represents the moral character of God. And that doesn't change. The Apostle John, in the letter of 1 John, which is where I'll be next, it emphasizes the command to love one another as being both an old command and a new command at the same time. If you'd like to follow along, I'll be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 to 10. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. John is here reminding his readers of a commandment. What is the commandment? Verses 9 and 10 lead us to what the commandment is. If we love our brother, this is evidence that we are walking in the light. If we say we are walking in the light, but we hate our brother, we're giving evidence that we're self-deceived. The commandment that John is writing about is the new commandment that Christ gave, the commandment that we are to love one another. John is also describing the new commandment in an unusual way. In verse 7, he writes that it's not a new commandment, but an old one that they had from the beginning. But in the next verse, he writes that at the same time, it's a new commandment. The commandment's both old and new. Now, different commentators, they will treat the wording in different ways. Some think that John says the commandment is old because, well, he's writing decades after Jesus gave the new commandment. And, well, that's a possible reason. But I think other, other commentators are actually correct when they give another reason. The command to love one another is ancient. It's as ancient as Leviticus chapter 19, which is where I'll read from next. Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. God's command to his people to love one another, it's ancient. But John also states that it's a new commandment. And I think this is because Jesus renewed the commandment. 
and gave it new emphasis, new focus, as I mentioned a few minutes ago. But the content of the commandment has not changed from those ancient times because the moral law does not change. The new commandment is both old and new at the same time. Now as we go back to 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 to 10, John also tells us why the commandment, which they had from the beginning, is also new. Verse 8 says the commandment is true in him and in you. True in him and in you. This commandment to love is true in him, in Christ, and in you, the Christians that John was writing to. Christ is the perfect example of this love, and it is also growing in Christ's followers. Then John goes on and explains why this is happening. He says, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The gospel, the power of God for salvation, has entered the world and darkness is giving way to true light. As people are saved, they're enabled to begin following the new commandment. Then in verses 9 and 10, John tells us the evidence showing who is in light and who is still in darkness it has everything to do with this commandment that's both old and new. I'll read those two verses again. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. What's John saying here? He's saying the talk is cheap. It's easy to just say, I'm in the light, I'm a Christian. But if we walk in the light, if we abide in the light, this will bear fruit and evidence. The fruit and evidence do not earn salvation. And the fruit and evidence, it won't be perfect in this life, but it should be apparent. And here John is reminding us of the fruit and evidence of the moral law as shown in loving our brother. Are we displaying, to some extent, the new commandment of Christ? Are we loving our neighbor as ourselves, as the moral law says? Are we displaying the third use of the moral law, the use that guides our lives as Christians? All of this shows antinomianism to be error. As Christians, we show that we walk in the light with the fruit and evidence of love. Some Christians may claim this love has nothing to do with the moral law. That's all Old Testament. They may say that, all moral law of the Old Testament, it's swept away for something completely different, the law of Christ or the new commandment. But the fact is, at the law of Christ, the new commandment, it's not different in content from the Old Testament moral law. It's new in its new focus, its new example in Christ, and the newness of our enablement as Christians. But the law of Christ and the new commandment still have the content of loving God, loving our brother. If we remember that the first proper use of the moral law, if you remember a couple of studies ago, the first use of the law is to show us our true condition and drive us to Christ. And the third use is to guide Christians in how to live in gratitude to our Savior. That will keep us from two errors. The two errors are like, once again, two ditches on either side of the straight road. We want to keep from going into one ditch or the other. The two errors are nomism and antinomianism. 
Now this word nomism, what does that mean? Nomism comes from the Greek word for law, namas. Nomism is the error that we can, at least to some extent, earn our salvation through the law. Sometimes, like with Mormonism, our own law-keeping is kind of mixed with grace to gain salvation, sort of this mixture of law and grace. But if our own law-keeping is required, we'd have to keep it perfectly for our entire lives. The law only speaks of an absolute standard, and anything short of that is sin. It's do or die with the law. Nomism is a misuse of the law because it, it goes against the first use of the law, which is to show us our condemnation before the law. John Calvin phrased the first use of the law like this. He said, the law is like a mirror. In it, we contemplate our weakness, then the iniquity arising from this, and finally the curse coming from both, just as a mirror shows us the spots on our face. The law, in its first use, is a mirror that shows us our dirty face, but it can't clean our face. Nomism is the ditch on one side of the straight road that we need to avoid. The ditch on the other side of the road is antinomianism. With antinomianism, we are denying that the law has any relevance for Christians. But we've seen that antinomianism is a denial of the third use of the law which is to show us the pattern of sanctification, how we are to live as fruit and evidence. It shows us what Christ-likeness looks like. For the Christian, and only the Christian, the third use of the moral law guides us in the fruit and evidence of salvation. The moral law is our companion that shows us how to live in gratitude to God. When the law is in its proper place, and the grace of the gospel is in its proper place, then the law is not in conflict with the gospel. Each has their purpose. I'll quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith where it addresses the role of the law in its third use. That Confession of Faith says, neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The spirit of Christ subduing in enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. The unlawful uses of the law mix law and gospel together, which just ends up being salvation by works. But the lawful use of the law sweetly complies with the gospel. The lawful use of the law sweetly complies with the gospel. Once we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, the Holy Spirit enables us and guides us gradually to keep the moral law. Before salvation, we hated the law, but now we come to love the moral law. Before salvation, we saw, we saw the moral law as handcuffs that we rebelled against, but now we seek to follow the law cheerfully and fully. As Christians, we should strive to think of the moral law in the way that Psalm 119, verse 105 proclaims. And I'll read from that next. It says about how the word of God guides us and how God's moral law should now guide us as believers. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If we walk in the true light of God's word, we won't stumble like those who walk in the dark. The lamp of God's word, including his moral law, is as welcome to us as a lamp is on a dark path at night. You know what, if you've ever been on a guided tour of a cave, and I've been on a couple of those, what the, what the tour guide will sometimes do is to turn off all the electric lights while the group is down in the cave's passages. And the guide might then say, while you're standing there in total and complete darkness, that no matter how long you were to stand there in that darkness, the darkness is so profound that you would never see the hand in front of your face no longer, no matter how long you stood there. If you were in that cave alone and the light suddenly went off, your greatest wish would be for light. God's word, including his moral law, is our light as we live life. We don't keep the law to earn salvation, but we seek the moral law as light on our path, guiding our thoughts, words, and deeds. That is the third use of the law, a use that is for believers only. The third use of the moral law, it's so important that John Calvin called this use the principal use of the law. The principal use of the law. Here's a quote from Calvin on the principal use of the law. He said, the third and principal use, which pertains more closely to the proper purpose of the law, finds its place among believers in whose hearts the Spirit of God already lives and reigns. For even though they have the law written and engraved upon their hearts by the finger of God, that is, have been so moved and quickened through the directing of the Spirit that they long to obey God, they still profit by the law in two ways. Calvin then writes on those two ways that believers benefit from the third use, the principal use. Believers benefit because we learn each day the will of the Lord whom we serve. And second, when we meditate on the moral law, the law exhorts us to avoid sin and to be strengthened in obedience. For the last four studies, we took a little detour from the Ordo Salutis to look at the law of God. And we've seen that the law, as delivered to Moses, has three parts. The ceremonial law, the judicial law, and the moral law. The ceremonial law has been abrogated, and the judicial law was meant for ancient national Israel and is now expired. But the moral law is grounded in the moral character of God, and it's always valid. We then focused on the moral law and the three lawful uses of the moral law. The first lawful use is to show us our sin and our need for Christ. The second lawful use is to restrain the nations from being as evil as they could possibly be. The third lawful use is for Christians only, those already justified by grace. After we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace, the moral law then is our welcome guide to show us how to live in gratitude to God, bearing fruit and evidence of our salvation. And the reason for our detour to study the law is that the next stop on the Ordo Salutis, justification, has everything to do with the law. We were born lawbreakers and sinners, and we personally sin, not keeping the law personally, perfectly, and perpetually, which is the law's demand to be declared righteous. The law condemns us. 
Our only hope to be saved is what we will study next, what the reformers called the marvelous exchange. That exchange is that our sins are accounted to Christ at the cross and Christ's perfect righteousness under the law is accounted to us. And I'll close tonight by reading from Psalm 19, which tells us of the perfection of the law of God and its benefits to us as long as we use it lawfully according to its intended purpose. I'll read from Psalm 19, starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward.